We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. When we talk about history, we are a part of history. We are in the now is what someone will one day be talking about in the future as the past. And so what we do with the time that God's given us here and now is incredibly important. So tonight, um, we're going to do it a little bit differently than, than we have before. We're talking about the 13th and 14th centuries. But instead of just walking you through some dates or times... Tonight, I wanted to point out three people that I think are three of the most important people that have lived in church history. Throughout 2,000 years of church history, I think these, these three people, and they happen to live during this 200-year span, are some of the most incredible stories. So I've broken it up uh, in your notes there. Um, does everybody have a listening sheet? If you don't, I'll send somebody out to get one. Don't have one? Uh, anybody, anybody else, Chris, you going to get one? Anybody else need, need a couple? Okay. You'll see that those are broken up, uh, and I've got three names on there. So we're looking at this like biographies. Um, there are some people that love to read, some people that don't care about reading, but most people uh, that enjoy reading, most of the time they have a niche. They like certain things. Some people like romance novels, or some people like sci-fi novels, or some people like mysteries, or whatever it may be. Um, biographies are one of the greatest ways to learn history in a narrative form because as you learn about the person you also learn about the time in which they lived so we're going to look at these three we're going to look at these three people today and the first one that you see listed on there is Saint Francis of Assisi now before before we even talk about him um, without reading anything about that if someone just walked up to you on the street and said, have you ever heard of St. Francis of Assisi? How many, most of you, I think, would say, yes, I've heard of that dude. In fact, most people, if you say, well, what, what, what is he known for? Most people would say, well, he's known for that prayer, right? Everybody know the prayer? It was actually, the reason I know this is, uh, maybe, what is it? Is it cross-stitch, um, like needle and thread through, and it, it, when people like do Bible verses and they put them on the wall, is that cross stitch? Okay. Well, in my grandmother's house, it was cross stitched onto onto the wall. Th this prayer, and it was it's the Serenity Prayer. Anybody know what I'm talking about? God, give me the strength to change things I can, and you know the wisdom. The, what is it? Give me the. the wisdom to know the difference. That, there, there you go. That's always been attributed. In fact, on her wall, it was St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't write that. Um, in fact, it was hundreds of years later that that ever got pinned, but he's gotten credit for it. So um, I'm hoping maybe I'll get some credit for some things I didn't do one day. Um, but that had nothing to do with him. But in his own right, he did some pretty incredible things. He was born to a wealthy family, um, handsome, good-looking guy, smart, ambitious, um, his whole goal in life was he wanted to become a knight in the Crusades. We talked about the Crusades. That was the holy war where um, the Christian church went to war against Islam, and they thought the way to stamp out the threat, uh, this Islamic threat, was actually to go into a military battle against them. It's one of the, the worst decisions in church history that was ever made. Um, but he was eventually he was captured, imprisoned, and released. And after he was released, his story is that he wandered into a church. And when he wandered into this church at San Damien, 
He said he felt the Lord calling to him. Um, and he knelt and prayed, O Lord Jesus, shed your light upon the darkness of my mind. And he had a vision of Jesus telling him to rebuild this little fallen-in church. And one of the things that's so interesting about him, that we'll, and we'll talk about some of the amazing things that happened in his life, but none of those things happened until he led the project to rebuild this little fallen apart church at San Damien. Now what's interesting about that is that when God works in our lives and through our lives and calls you to things, most people, and I am probably the world's worst about this, I'm willing to do what God asked me to do most of the time. But I want God to tell me everything He's going to do on the front end. In other words, lay it all out for me. I'm willing to do it, but give me the whole shebang. Give me the whole plan. Tell me how this is all going to work out. And I'm going to tell you, I'm 43 years old, and He hadn't done that yet. Um, and, and most of the time, all He gives you is a piece. You don't really know anything but this one thing that He puts in front of you and He tells you to do, and you get convicted of it, and it's on your heart, and it's on your mind. And the fascinating thing about St. Francis of Assisi, and this could be applied to everyone in this room, if you don't do the little thing that God has placed in front of you to do, then you can forget about the next things or the biggest things. You've got to do first things first. So he starts rebuilding this little church, and he got up. Uh, he was not sure necessarily how to interpret what God was doing in his life, and so he spends a few years working with lepers, um, which. By the way, um, I just read a, a book. This, is, this has nothing to do with this. I just feel like talking about it. Um, but I didn't know this. Did you know that there was a leper colony in Louisiana? And by the way, I didn't know this, that you actually aren't supposed to call it leprosy. It's actually Hansen's disease. Um, that that is actually what it's supposed to be referred to as. Um, but it is really fascinating. It's called, the book's called In the Sanctuary of the Outcast. Actually, in Louisiana, they had a state uh, or actually a federal prison and a leper colony that were together in Louisiana. It's, a, it's fascinating. Um, but it is really an incredible thing for someone, especially in his time, to be willing to work in a leper colony because that would have been, and, and even if you study Mother Teresa's life, it is an example of somebody willing to be with the lowest of the low, the, the person that, that Jesus would have been with or spent time with. And while he was there, he heard a sermon about uh, how Jesus sent out his disciples to preach the kingdom of God without dependence on earthly goods from Matthew 10, and he was transformed. He gives his life over to a life of simplicity, and he began to preach repentance as the way into Christ's kingdom. Now, that may not seem like, well, what's the big deal about that? That was revolutionary, absolutely revolutionary, because what did the church teach? The church taught baptism and church affiliation and church membership for entrance into the kingdom of God. And he begins to preach repentance is the only way to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, he eventually became a missionary, went to Spain and in Egypt. And at age 44, now this, I'm 43. He was a year older than I am now when he died. And he did all of this in this amount of time. And as he laid dying, the last words that came off of his lips, I love this. They recorded it. He quoted Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he took his last breath and he died. Um, one of great heroes of faith, uh, St. Francis of Assisi. The second one you see there is Thomas Aquinas, um, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, it's interesting in his life, you see his, his life um, dates that are there. It is amazing um, as children, sometimes the labels that get put on kids can tend to stick. Um, if you, how many of you have a nickname? There are more than two of y'all that have a nickname. Uh, I know some of y'all. I, I know some of your nicknames. I can't even call them out in here. They're not appropriate. You got though. I found out Chris has got a nickname. Y'all know. Y'all know Chris has got a nickname. I just found it out this week. I'm gonna let y'all worry about that. I'll tell y'all later. Uh, I'll tell y'all later. But most people, most people do. But most people, the reason some of y'all, when I asked that, y'all went, oh, yeah, yeah. because you got it as a kid and probably somebody close to you gave it to you and they gave you it for a purpose. Either something you did or something, a uh, sound you made or the way you looked. And sometimes those can stick with us. I think it's really important that as we're raising kids and that as we're breathing life into them as the church, that we understand that the labels we place on people can have lasting effects. If you tell somebody that they are dumb long enough, guess what? They'll believe they're dumb. You tell somebody they're ugly long enough, they'll believe they're ugly. You tell a kid he's not any good at sports, well, don't blame him when he doesn't want to play. Like you, and so they told, they said, they called him Ox. They, they gave him the, a nickname, the Dumb Ox, because they said as a kid, he, they didn't even know how he's going to function. He was too dumb to function. Now, I don't know how you really overcome that, but that was his life growing up. But he was smarter than people thought. In fact, he was so bright that he changed the way that people thought about Christianity and thought about scholarship in general. He changed academia forever, not just Christian academia. He was born to a wealthy family. Um, he showed signs of devotion. So they sent him off to be educated by monks. Now, that was the, the best form of education. If you had money, you sent your kid. That was, that was the elite private school. So he shows some devotion. Let's go let him be, let's pay some big bucks and get him educated by the monks. But they ran into a problem because he decided to become one and his family lost their mind. Wait a minute. We sent you there to be educated. We want you to be a lawyer. We want you to be a politician. We aren't interested in you being in the ministry. That isn't why we sent you there. So they did everything that they could to try to deprogram him. They kidnapped him. They kept him hostage. They tried to keep him away from church. They tried to keep him away from the school because they did not want him to do that. He persisted and persisted. And so eventually they decided that they would try to make sure he didn't go to the ministry. And his family hired a prostitute to try to seduce him so that he would sin and they could make the sin public so that he wouldn't be able to go into the ministry. If you think people just became cray-cray... That's not new. And so they tried, to, they tried this with him, but he persisted. And so as he persisted, they finally gave in and said, well, if you're going to do this, we want you to do, we, we at least want you to be upper echelon clergy. So they tried to buy him a post as the Archbishop of Naples. They purchased his position because they wanted him to start at the top. 
but he escapes his family and moves to Paris to study theology. And while he was there, he became a great writer, a great debater, and published his first work. You see that Summa Theologica. His premise was that Christianity makes sense and that we should use our human reason to understand God's revelation. He used Romans 1.20 as a key text that we can tell by nature that God exists. And so the church fought against him because they wanted to hold on to their fanciful and allegorical interpretations of Scripture. The reason being is if... I tell you that the only way for you to understand Scripture is to come hear me because I'm the only one who can understand it. So you need to come and let me interpret the Bible for you. Don't try to read it for yourself. You let me do it. Well, if I start teaching you that you can understand the Bible for yourself, well, then I've given away the authority that I would have had over you to need me to be able to understand the Bible. So the church, they label him an apostate. They label him a rebel. But he persisted and he wrote five arguments that are still being used in textbooks today for the existence of God as well as the principle of natural law that has formed the way that legal developments were made. Our constitution is based in natural law. And so Thomas Aquinas, an incredible figure, if you want to study more about him, really, really, really powerful um, what God did in, in and through his life. And then number three, and I love this guy. Um, absolutely uh, thought about him when we were in Guatemala. Um, John Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. We're going to talk about the Reformation next week. But he is really, for most people, the one that started the Protestant Reformation because what he began started spreading across Europe and lasted for two centuries. Trained at Oxford, became a philosopher, a chaplain in the king's court. He was outspoken in his views on the separation of church and state. Now, when I say he was for the separation of church and state, when you hear that in our Western culture, you think, oh, that's terrible. No, he was against it because the church and the state were in cahoots with each other, and he thought that this church should be separate from the state because the kingdom of God was different than the kingdom of men. We need to remember that today too, but he preached that. And so he preached the separation of church and state, the primacy of scripture, the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, which when we say the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, that's a difficult message because the Roman Catholic Church was the church. There wasn't a Protestant church because the Protestant Reformation hadn't started yet. So he was not scared to back down from a fight. Um, the idea that the church was God's people and that they did not need a priest to, to mediate for them, that was revolutionary. We can go directly to God. He taught that the content of preaching must be the Bible. Isn't that revolutionary? That the only thing you have to preach is the Word of God. In addition, he argued the Bible must be available in the language of the people so it can be understood. So these things got him into trouble and banned from preaching and banned for teaching. They didn't even want the Bible to be able to be translated into the English of the time. They wanted it to remain in Latin because that way you were completely dependent on the priesthood and completely dependent on the church. So when he started the, talking about the need for everyone to be able to read the Bible in their own language, they kicked against that. He was banned and he began in translating the entire Bible into English. That's amazing. He... he, he that was a revolutionary idea at the time, that there would be a Bible in English. And he began translating into English. Uh, commoners would, for the first time, be able to read the Bible for themselves. 
every reformer that you will study, from John Calvin to Martin Luther to Ulrich Zwingli, all of them trace their roots to John Wycliffe. Even Henry VIII, after reading Wycliffe, separated the English church from the Roman Catholic church. So he paved the way for translating Bibles into the language of people. And this is how much impact he has. Have any of you ever heard of the Wycliffe Bible Society? That's named after him. And still today, there are groups of people that they are working to put the Bible into their language. There are still people around the world, tribes and communities, that have their own native tongues and dialects that have yet to have the Bible translated into their language. And the whole goal of Wycliffe Bible Translators is that there would not be a people group in the world that would not have a Bible translated into their language. When you talk about the impact throughout history, you can't talk about church history without talking about John Wycliffe, without talking about Thomas Aquinas, without talking about St. Francis of Assisi. I think these guys are important to know something about because we need to have heroes. God is obviously the only, we only glory in the cross, but we need to have examples of people that have gone on before us to see that it is absolutely paramount um, that we can make a difference. And so I, I think these are incredible stories. Maybe just these little blurbs or these paragraphs have created some interest in you. You can do some, some research on them. I think it would really do you well um, to think about, about reading some Christian biographies about some people and what God's done in their lives and through their lives to inspire you with what God's doing in your life today. Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you um, that you are the God of history. We thank you that you reign over all. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you've done in and through our lives. So, Lord, I thank you that there are people who have gone on before us to show us how to live in the, um, despite troubling times and difficult situations and circumstances. So, God, we thank you, number one, for Jesus, that he uh, set the path before us, that he endured the cross and suffered its shame. Lord, I pray that we would emulate him and that we would do it well. Lord, we love you, and I thank you for this church. I pray that when we look back on church history, that we would be able to say that First Baptist Church of Summit did what they were called to do in their time to further the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.